1: The power over that men have in patriarchy does produce certain benefits. There are deeper and richer benefits to trying to let go of that power over. That's the voice of author, activist, and teacher Dr. Robert Jensen. On this week's show, Sylvia has a lively discussion with Dr. Jensen about radical patriarchy for men, so stay tuned.
0: This morning, we are very privileged to be joined by Dr. Robert Jensen. He is emeritus professor at the School of Journalism at the University of Texas. He's also a prolific author, activist, writer, organizer. His accolades go far. I'm very excited about your latest book, The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Great to be with you, Sylvia.
0: I've always loved... um, listening to the way you deconstruct things. So I I wonder if we could begin by first asking the question, what does patriarchy mean? How does it create a a story of power that shapes the way we see women and men and our relationship not only to each other but also to the earth and all the beings that we share the earth with?
1: Sure. Uh, The term patriarchy is... uh, you know, translates literally as kind of rule of the father. But we now use the term really to mean any system of institutionalized male dominance. That is a social system in which one group of people, that is men, are presumed to have authority over another group of people, that is women. One way I described patriarchy, uh, I borrow from Alan Johnson, the late sociologist, and he said a patriarchal system is one that is male-dominated male-identified and male-centered. That is, men tend to dominate. It is men's interests around which the society is organized, and women tend to, to service men in that sense. So patriarchy obviously changes over time. Uh, the United States is a patriarchal society today, but not in the same way it was 100 years ago. The United States is a patriarchal society, and so is, let's say, Saudi Arabia, although they're quite different in the way that men exercise power. So patriarchy is a system of oppression, and we recognize that in all sorts of other ways. We recognize white supremacy as a system of oppression, where white people claim to have certain privileges and power over non-white people. Capitalism is a system of oppression uh, by which one small group of people commandeer a disproportionate share of the society's resources. Uh, Patriarchy is just another system of oppression. Now, what's interesting about patriarchy is, of course, it goes back further than those others. Patriarchy is, depending on how you chart it, you know, four or five, six thousand years old. It's been with us a long time. And it's important to be able to identify it to then go forward and talk about the problems that arise in patriarchy, such as sexual violence, for instance.
0: Now, I was um, at, a, at a people's social forum in Tunis, and um, we were at a women's um, forum. And one of the men stood up and he says, Patrick, he's never going to stop until women change. And the thoughts stay with me because I do see the relational part of how we sustain systems of oppression the internalized oppression of people who uh, of people of color for instance who continuously um, self-censored and participate you know in their own oppression So how can we talk about this in a way that, honors both our vulnerability to internalize oppression and the way that institutionalized oppression, whether it be juridical, economic, social, cultural, educational, you know, the many institutions that shape how we see and understand the world affect our ability to see our own agency to transform those systems.
1: Well, the, the comment is surely accurate um, that, Any change in systems of oppression requires action on the part of everyone. But before we we focus too much on women's role in supporting patriarchy, we should remember that patriarchy is a system that primarily benefits men uh, and that it is men's moral responsibility to challenge that system in the same way that I'm white. And while I can perhaps identify ways that people of color you know, uh, support in you know complex ways, a system of white supremacy uh, that doesn't absolve me of the moral uh, obligation to be at the forefront of challenging white supremacy as a white person who benefits from the system. So uh, that said, patriarchy socializes men into assuming these positions of dominance and seeing themselves as naturally dominant over women. But as you point out, it also socializes women to see themselves as naturally subordinate, and women have and in feminism do challenge that. So there's plenty of work for everybody to do, but we should always remember that systems of unearned power and privilege, such as patriarchy, such as white supremacy, deliver benefits to one group over another. And it's that group that is receiving the unjust benefits that has the greatest moral responsibility to work to change the system. Now, we also know that people are sometimes reluctant to challenge systems that give them that unearned power and privilege. And that's what politics is all about, forging coalitions, challenging people to do the right thing. uh, And when people don't choose to do the right thing, trying to create pressure to to force them to do that. That's the feminist movement.
0: I grew up in Latin America under the sound of bombs and, you know, war was the water we swam in. And in that level of constant insecurity, there seemed to be very little spaces to even talk about the physical and personal oppression of women being raped and so can we talk a little bit about how patriarchy this sense of um, male entitledness to women's bodies um Mm -hmm. not only perpetuates a rape culture but exacerbates um you know the insecurity that we coexist with in a society that Uh, see plundering and raping as a naturalized way of being to accumulate wealth or to accumulate power.
1: Sure. So your point is well taken. There are lots of differences among societies about how male power is institutionalized and normalized and naturalized. Uh, My experience is in the United States. I was born and raised in this country and have never lived outside the country, and so I think uh, my appropriate focus is on my society. And there I can see, because of the feminist movement, uh, greater awareness of, for instance, we're talking about men's sexual violence against women, uh, a huge problem, a problem that exists at epidemic levels. And because of the feminist movement, we now have rape crisis centers, we have uh, better laws to prosecute, sexual violence, uh, more attention on the subject, Uh, but we also know that rape is a crime that is routine, that it goes largely unpunished, and that even in a society like the United States that has, you could argue, made advances, uh, we still have sexual violence at epidemic levels. And we can then go on and say, well, uh, in addition to what we we label and, and criminalize as rape, There's lots of other forms of men's sexual exploitation and abuse of women. And in the United States, one of the most common is through what I call the sexual exploitation industries, pornography, prostitution, stripping, the ways that men routinely buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure. Well, those activities aren't rape in the legal sense, but they're another expression of men's patriarchal claim to women's bodies. And so can we have a critical conversation about how virtually every young man and boy in this culture, for instance, it gets their primary sexual education from pornography, a a graphic sexually explicit material that sexualizes men's control of women. Uh, These are the difficult questions. And at any given time in any given society, the focus of a critique of patriarchy may change, but we have to stay focused on the way patriarchy bubbles up in in our culture at our moment in history.
0: I often think about how um, interconnected all the systems of oppression are. You know, racism. Um, when we when we fail to see the way we've turned one section of the population into inferior to ourselves. uh, You know, you can see it all around the world. In the case of the U.S., I think... Um the, the rape culture goes beyond just the physical rape of women. It goes into the rape of countries. You know, we see the recent events in Venezuela where they're starving the people, literally starving them with sanctions and economic assaults. Uh, but also the the constant um, aggression uh, that has become normative and has become an, a symbol of power. How do we invite men to give up that addiction to feeling power over, um, and and what do we offer? Because what what what's on the other side? Um, for many men, yeah. they already feel disempowered by economic situations, by I many, and this is one area where they have power over.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, a couple of points on terminology. Um, I don't tend to use the term rape as. Uh, a more generic uh, term about violence. So I don't tend to talk about how one society might engage in you know, the rape of another, or, or more commonly how people often refer to human beings as sort of raping the ecosphere through environmental, environmentally uh, destructive behaviors. I think rape is a very specific activity in which men invade women's bodies. And I tend to use it only for that. But you're, of course, right that at the core of rape is the assertion of power over. And we know that takes many forms. It takes the forms of, of you know uh, one society with military or economic power dominating another to extract resources and labor. Uh, and we know that the human species engages in a, a form of domination over the, the rest of the living world that's very destructive. So uh, that power over is an important term that you use, and I agree that's a a crucial um, way to describe the many relationships that structure the world. What's on the other side of power over? That is, if you decide to give up power over, which, of course, does produce certain benefits. If you are in a position of power over, you typically have a disproportionate share of the world's wealth. You have status, you know, and those things are very attractive in certain ways. Uh, In this, all I can do is talk about my own experience as a man who fairly late in life, not till about the age of 30, was exposed to a feminist critique and came to understand that while the power over that men have in patriarchy does produce certain benefits, there are deeper and richer benefits to trying to let go of that power over um in the realm of sexuality and intimacy, which I've written a lot about, uh, I think we see a good example of that that take pornography for instance, uh, an expression of men's control over women's sexuality. it does deliver some things very quickly, you know, intense sexual pleasure to men. But when you let go of that, you realize that in building intimate relationships with real people, you can, experience something much deeper and much more meaningful than the short-term intense sexual pleasure that comes from pornography. So that's a, a very visceral example of think uh, of what letting go of power over can bring. And I think we all realize that, uh, well, again, while holding power over other people and over the non-human world does give us certain kinds of benefits, it's at the expense of our own humanity uh, we give up something when we decide we're going to control other people and I think that at the core is the the argument for why men should reject patriarchy why white people should reject white supremacy why people of affluence should reject capitalism uh, there's something on the other side that's much more meaningful and we all know that at some level
0: I was just taken back when you were saying this way of recognizing in ourselves, right, the ways that we participate Mm -hmm. and um, the ways we can turn away from things that offer us a particular privilege. Um, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, this power with that we Mm co-create, this power with that enables us to plant new seeds, not only of uh, a possibility, because most of us may not get to see it, you know, bear fruit, or maybe we will, you know, I I really Mm -hmm. believe that uh, history works in some ways, sometimes that we don't, we don't anticipate, but you know, sometimes we can be surprised by our own ability to co-create with others, new ways of being, new ways of seeing, and transform our society in very little time so let's talk a little bit about some of the ways that we embrace um those seeds that we create that change in our lives and and what are some of the actions people who are still tentative about giving up their perceived Mm -hmm. power
1: i i think you're absolutely right and it's um at the same time that we always want to keep our eye focused on politics and changing policy, um, you know, challenging economics as it's currently constructed, all of the things that we think about as being uh, the real work of politics, I think you're absolutely right that we also have to think about how to change from within and change the way we live day to day in the world. that both things are part of making a better world. Um, One of those alone won't do it. You can't just say, well, I'm going to focus on myself and then the world is going to be better. Well, the world might get better for you, but we also have an obligation to the common struggle. And sometimes that is a struggle that's very hard and requires sacrifice and risk and all of that. So uh, we shouldn't, however, neglect the ways we can see that that power with, which is a term that's been around for more than a century now, to recognize that power is not just control. You know, in traditional kind of political science terms, power is the ability to make someone do what they would otherwise not do. I have power over you if I can compel you to do what you would not do on your own. And again, that will bring me certain kind of benefits if I can make you do things I want you to do. But much more uh, important is the creative power when you and I would then come together and say, what are our mutual interests, which will never be 100%. But where can we find those places to create together? You know, that's basically how the human species evolved, you know, long before we lived in these so-called civilizations and big cities and empires. We lived in small gathering hunting bands, probably in the 15 to 50 range. And we had to get along. We had to co-create. Co-creation wasn't something we probably talked about back then. It's just something we did because it was a way that small groups of human beings could survive and thrive. In fact, that's in some sense what's distinctive about the human species, our ability to collaborate and cooperate. That's important to recognize because when people, especially in capitalism, say, well, human nature is to be competitive and greedy. Well, sure. I mean, all of us have an aspect of our our personalities that can be competitive and greedy, but we also know that it's the collaboration and cooperation that allowed the human species to you know build everything we built in the world so uh, those are kind of simple truths that are easy to forget in a world that's constantly trying to get us to buy into this notion that power is always a kind of zero-sum game for control and it's not and we see it every day in our lives we decide to cooperate with friends neighbors co-workers not necessarily to just advance our own interests but because that's what it, means to be a human being. That's what gives human life that deeper, richer meaning we were talking about, to be engaged with others. We're not a solitary creature. We're a social creature. All of this is sort of basic, and it's just hard to hold on to in a a world that's always trying to push us in a different direction.
0: I was in uh, South Africa, and one of the women there said to me, we believe in Ubuntu. Ubuntu means... Mm -hmm we are. I am because we are. And I often think about how the indigenous people all over the world, whether it's the Aymara people who believe in Sumakamanya, which is we coexist well rather than live better um you know Mm -hmm. or whether it is the indigenous people here in north america who uh, tell us we are all our relations we are all related to the earth related to each other related to everything that breathes and you know creates life and even the non-sentient beings of this earth the mountains the trees are part of our relations so For me, I think creating that sense of communion with myself and with the world, creating that sense of uh, responsibility, you know, not in the sense of my duty, Mm. but rather my ability to respond is also an invitation, an invitation to co-create new possibilities, new ways of being and to co-create this power with that, you know, sustains us you have yeah. described radical feminism as one of the, and as the you know one of the paths perhaps to abandoning the road of patriarchy towards a more mm-hmm. embracing of each other or, or a more inclusive path
1: I, I think there are different doors into the fundamental truths that you just articulated um, in certain indigenous traditions it's articulated in the way you you made clear. Uh, I think radical feminism is one of those paths that challenges the very notion that hierarchy is inevitable, the notion that there will always be some people with power over others. Um, you know, the critical race movement and the critique of white supremacy is another door that opens into that very different way of thinking of human beings and also of human beings' relationship to the the larger living world. Um, certain strains of deep ecology and radical ecology uh, in the Western world offer the same um, insight. I think, you know, one way to say this uh, is uh, we're a, a kind of rights obsessed society. Everybody's talking about my right and your rights and human rights. And in some sense, we need to recognize there are no such things as human rights. There are only human obligations. Obligations to each other and obligations to the larger living world. And when we live in right relation to each other, then we don't think about rights as legal claims that we can make to protect ourselves. Uh, You know, all of this, again, as you were speaking, I was thinking of how basic these truths are and how even in uh, religious traditions that have been perverted, those basic truths are there. So in Judaism or Christianity, the idea of loving your neighbors yourself is not putting yourself as primary. The early Christian tradition of living in common and understanding that all should be shared. Uh, these are foundational to every moral and theological system we can identify. Now, the world that we live in with its hierarchies and its struggle for um, material goods can easily pervert those moral and theological systems. So how do we get back? And we're trying to get back to the tradition out of which we might have come, but also to see that all the traditions share this basic kind of philosophy, which in in my tradition of the the Christian tradition was often called the the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's a version of that in every system. And that's what we're trying to get to. It will be expressed differently depending on time, place, geography, and culture. But at the core, is a very human instinct to want to be part of a loving world, not always competitive in a in a harsh world. And I think that's what we're all trying to get back to, uh, or at least everybody who I would say is engaged in a, a, a kind of moral quest.
0: That's beautiful. Um, my last question is, For all of us who are social activists, who are committed to a world with more justice, a world of justice, really, there's no, (laughs) you know, for me, justice is about dignity. Uh It's about everyone being able to live with dignity. Um, There is a sense of um, exhaustion that takes place, you know, when you... um, when you're faced with multiple defeats, how do you sustain yourself? How do you keep yourself energized and committed and and mm-hmm. inspire others to also self-care and care for others as they care for others?
1: Well, this will sound a little strange perhaps, but what keeps me going is the awareness that I'm going to lose. And <laughs> By that, I, I I don't mean to be glib, but if you think about, the movements that try to make the world a better place in the terms we're talking about. Feminist rejections of patriarchy, uh, critical race rejection of white supremacy, uh, various kinds of rejections of capitalism, and of course, the overarching importance of the ecological movement and trying to create a a planet that will sustain us into the future. Well, let's face it, all of those movements are Losing in some sense. I don't mean there are no victories. I don't mean that there's never progress. But in general, we've made remarkably little progress in trying to um, really undermine those basic systems of hierarchy. Well, that's likely going to continue. And what gives me hope, in a sense, is knowing that my life, my life's work, my value in the world, my happiness doesn't depend on always winning. Um, That being engaged in struggle is how one creates a meaningful life, and there will always be people in that struggle. Now, of course, I don't again want to be glib and say that it doesn't matter whether we win or lose, because people suffer and die when movements for justice cannot make progress. The planet continues to degrade when movements for sustainability don't make progress. So I I don't want to be um, you know, sort of flippant about the consequences of all this, but once you realize that in your own lifetime, you will not see a success in that bigger sense, then you realize that you make a contribution where you can make a contribution. You try to find like-minded people who make day-to-day activity meaningful. And you realize that if at the end of your life, you, you can say that you did that consistently, um, then that's what it means to live a good life. And we all know that movements were built by people who never saw success in the short term. I think of the civil rights movement, for instance, which we identify with the 1950s, 60s, 70s in the US and forward, well, from the end of slavery to the the successes of the civil rights movement, there were hundreds, thousands, millions of people who struggled, suffered and died without seeing real progress. And yet their struggle made it possible for future generations to make progress. So I think that big picture helps us put our own lives in context.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us today. How can people access your book and how can people stay in touch with you?
1: Well, if people put my name, Robert Jensen, uh, into Google, and if you spell it right, it's J-E-N-S-E-N. One of the first pages that pops up is my page and it has an email address and links to articles and my books and uh you can find anything you want there
0: any final words to our audience uh
1: just that uh you know sylvia you and i've been talking on the radio over the course of a number of years now and i just wanted to say thank you because the work you do um, to keep alive these ideas is part of that network that fabric of um, justice that's so important and so we all make contributions but i think folks like you who stay with it and are constantly trying to raise up the voices that are so important uh to justice deserve a hats off so thanks a lot sylvia
0: i received that thank you so much take care
1: take care bye-bye we've come to the end of our show latin waves latin waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.